0: Hello everybody, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to this bumper end of year Q&A podcast. Uh, these have been really popular when we've done them in the past so and I always really enjoy putting them together. Uh, thanks to everyone who submitted questions too, we've had some uh, great questions submitted. Uh, I've divided it into two parts, so in this first part we're going to look at uh, self-defence, uh, training and general karate questions. And in the second part, we look at and Bunkai, uh, stances and technique, weapons and miscellaneous questions as well. A popular part, popular might be stretching it, <laughs> a part people like to talk about, whether they love them or loathe them, uh, is the spoof adverts. I originally did that in one years ago, um, just to amuse myself more than anything else. People seem to really like them, so as usual, there are some spoof advertisements uh, between sections add a little bit of humour and brevity into the proceedings, which I hope you'll enjoy. Uh, Very grateful to Dylan Tucker as well. So Dylan's a listener to the podcast. Uh, He's helped me out in the past. If you remember the Jamie Club one we did, uh, I hadn't quite got the sound right on that one. Uh, Dylan used his audio expertise to clean all that sound up for me. Uh, Just volunteered to do it. It was really good of him. And I got an email from him uh, while I was putting this podcast together saying, I don't know if you want these or not, but here are some adverts too so and Dylan's are great so um so the seven spoof adverts in this podcast four are mine uh, three are Dylan's you'll enjoy them all you know it's just if you like that silly sense of humor you'll, you'll really like them uh, just a warning there's some very very mild bad language in this podcast uh, nothing that anyone will take offense to. I, I, I just wanted to mention it just in case that you're listening to this podcast and these young children in earshot, uh, you might want to put the earphones in, but it's nothing that anyone will take offence of, so so no need to worry, but I thought I'd err on the side of caution and just give you all uh, a little warning. Of course, this is the time of year where people tend to stop training for a little bit, at least stop training at the dojo, uh, dojo closes down for a week, so I like the idea if you're listening to this podcast while you're doing your chores to get ready for Christmas, you know, while you're kind of uh, last minute preparations, decorating the tree, wrapping the presents, whatever it happens to be. Um, so, yeah, I hope you enjoy this podcast. And I hope it adds something to your Christmas. I hope you enjoy my answers to the questions. As always, these are just my uh, answers. You know, I, I'm not saying, you know, that I'm the definitive authority on any of this. Uh, but These are my views, and then, like, agree or disagree, I nevertheless hope you find them uh, an interesting listen. So, So yes, so let's hand over to our first sponsor. Want to make huge gains in muscle mass and martial competence? Then you need a BOLA MASS for martial artists. The world's first food supplement specifically designed for martial artists. Our unique mix of sugar and artificial flavorings are scientifically designed to combine with your gullibility to help you imagine massive gains. A ball mass for martial artists comes in a tub which is twice as big as actually needed and is covered in free stock photographs of an athlete who was strict with their diet and training and who has never even heard of our product. A ball mass for martial artists, now with double the levels of placebo. Just listen to what these customers have said. Since I started taking a Boller Mask for martial artists, I've started blaming my poor impulse control on roid rages. I was a puny white belt, now my online avatar is built like a tank. This has to be the number one product for gullible, work-shy martial artists who have money to burn. My punches were always weak, but thanks to a Boller for martial artists, my bowel movements have never been so explosive. A Boller Mask for martial artists comes in four manly flavours. Tiger Barb, Unwashed gum shield, napalm, and apricot and mango fusion. A bolo mask for martial artists, waste your hard earned cash now! Well, now that that's out of the way, um, <laughs> let's start with the self defence questions. So the first question we have is from Gus Rogers and he says, how important do you rate cardio and conditioning for self-defence? So if we'd look at each of those in turn, so uh, cardiovascular fitness, your your endurance, uh, that doesn't play a great role in a self-defence scenario. You know, we're talking about seconds of, of of extreme explosive violence so your cardiovascular system doesn't really have time to, to, to kick in it's, it's all anaerobic rather than aerobic uh, having said that i think that you do need a good degree of cardio to train effectively it means that in a training session you can get more done because you're less concerned about the levels of fatigue so indirectly uh, i think cardio has a, an influence on, on on self-defense and for your general health of course you know it's very important for the people listening to this you know heart disease will kill way more people than a self-defence scenario will, I mean, many times more. So remaining, you know, fit and healthy, that that's important. But for specific direct application in self-defence, and I would say cardio is not that important. It's important for fighting, it's important for training, it's not ex- important for the explosive world of, of self-defence. But well, In terms of conditioning, you know, your, your strength, your explosiveness, uh, I think that is very important. Um, because you're... You know, the best swordsman in the world still needs a decent sword. So you still need to have the physical conditioning in order to... uh enact that dynamic and explosive action now I've seen that as well and you know, I've trained with guys who their endurance long-term endurance is amazing but if you say right you know flat out explode now 10 seconds of extreme effort uh, they, they don't have it in them you know so uh, as an example I used to train with a guy who was a fell runner so the, the mountains near where we are we know we call them fells so these are super fit guys who run up and down the fells he's crazy fit uh, we had him on the pads, he started training karate, we had him on the pads, we did a two-minute pad drill and he was on his knees, you know, absolutely on his knees, panting for breath. And he goes, oh man, I, th- you know, I thought I was fit, I thought I was fit. To which I said, no, you are fit, but, but fit is like fit for purpose. You know, I, just, I joked and said, you, know, you should see me on the, the, the hills, you know. So there is a difference between that long, drawn-out endurance and that explosiveness. I think it's that explosiveness that we really need for, uh, for self-defence. So the next question is uh, from Peter Prokopuik, I hope i pronounced his surname correctly there, Peter, or <laughs> got somewhere close anyway. Uh, Peter tells a story of a online clip that he saw where a gentleman had used a head-eye roundhouse kick to effectively defend himself, and he says, well, while this is a self-defence success story, it was nevertheless achieved with a flashy, high-risk method. Is there a danger, do you believe, of some people seeing nothing but such clips and mistakenly believing them to be the go-to approach? So I Absolutely, because uh, people often do point to the exceptions to try and um, you know, justify breaking rules, you know, and. They- Headache, kicking is incredibly risky, and, and well, kicking generally is. I mean, self-defense-wise, you're you're very close. You you're gonna not have the room to kick uh, beyond simply kicking the shin, stamping to the thigh, stamping on the feet, kicking the knees. That those kind of kicks can have a limited role to play. But even then, when you take your foot off the ground to kick, you lose mobility because you're standing on one foot, and you lose stability as well. So kicks uh, for self-defense need to be used sparingly, which is, you know, why we don't see that many kicks in kata really, and the ones that we do are appropriate for close range, uh, within clinch, you know, stamps, scrapes, and, and 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 kicks to shins. It's that kind of stuff. So the trouble we have, of course, is, you know, someone does a head out roundhouse kick and it works, right? Uh, and then of course that hits the internet and goes viral, and then people point to it and go, "Yeah, see, that guy did it, so that's what we should do." Um, now, to be clear i mean i I like practicing head height kicking and I like using it in fighting. I think it 's fun and enjoyable it's it 's physically challenging that they 're very satisfying to land but in a self defense scenario we need to keep it as basic and as simple and as direct as we possibly can. so we can enjoy our head height kicking we can have fun with all the flash and flamboyant kicking um, and we can use that stuff when we spar each other too, but we need to realize that from vast majority of scenarios, you will not get the room to kick. When you do get the room to kick, it's still not advisable to do it uh, anyway. And while you do get some incredibly gifted individuals who can pull this kind of stuff off, through good luck as well, really, in some cases, uh, we shouldn't be uh, using that as a mean, because most people can't throw fast, effective, uh, head-eye kicks anyway, you know, the, the vast majority of people can't, so we shouldn't be inadvertently recommending it, just because we like to do head-eye kicking for for other reasons, and the fact is, you know, you'll get more power, for most people, you'll get more power with a punch to the head than you will with a kick to the head. Now, obviously, there's exceptions to that, you know, if you're a good kicker, you can generate more power with kicks, but for most people, by the time it gets to head-eye, things are starting to stretch, the technique might not be quite right, you know, unless you're you know, very flexible and, and very skilled, you know so I think I always remember reading an article where Nick had commented he said uh, uh kicking someone in the head makes about as much sense as punching them in the shin so I, for self defense purposes so when I'm I'm fighting for like in uh, the dojo happy to use had I kicks for self defense purposes my my legs if they're used at all will be kicking low and my hands will be k- a kind of striking high I wouldn't kind of cross them over like that just uh, far too risky on the the subject of you know uh, the exceptions proving the rule, I'll just tell a story about uh, um, a head ice kick. I did see personally saw so, uh, being used effectively. So uh, the, the the town that I live in, the main street, every other business is a pub, or at least it was. Every other business was a pub. So obviously Friday Saturday night, a lot of people on that on that street. And at the time as well, um, the UK laws at the time were that you could only serve alcohol up to 11pm. Uh, so what that meant was, at half ten, a bellies rang, people order as much drink as they can, drink as much as they can. Uh, just after 11 o'clock, they're all thrown out of the pubs, onto the street, and invariably, violence happens. Now, where this would most often happen is places that would sell fast food. So people go to the kebab shop or the chip shop, or they go to get you know a takeaway Chinese meal. And while they're standing there, all drunk, they get angry with one another and fights kick off. So I, you know you often hear that when British martial artists talk about it kicking off outside the chip shop, and I, I, it makes sense, <laughs> but it must seem odd to uh, to people from other cultures. Anyway, that, that was how it was at the time I lived on this street. So I had to get to my car, and I'd park my car, and um, I had to walk past one of the chip shops to get to where it was so that my house was on, on on that street so I left the house I crossed over to the other side so I wasn't uh, after walking through the drunks as I'm walking on the other side of my car I look across because I, I can see a commotion breaking off outside the chip shop and it's a guy I recognize used to do martial arts uh, years and years and years ago with me um, was a student of mine, we actually trained side by side, you know, a long time ago. And, and, and I see him push this guy backwards and then he chambers this, this, this head out roundhouse kick. He throws the roundhouse kick and in his drunken state on the slippy kind of pavement, he loses his foot in and falls flat on his back. The guy that he'd just about to kick burst out laughing and just walked away, right? So the head out roundhouse kick failed, right? It hit. So that, 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 that kick didn't work martially, but it worked as de-escalation. he de-escalated the fight perfectly. You know, there was a fight about to happen, but he made such a fool of himself with his roundhouse kick, the other guy bursts out laughing, points at him and walks off. Now, now then... Having seen that, and if I, you know, I'd videoed that, and if I was the kind of person who would put that stuff online, I'm not. But if I did, I can imagine people would find it funny. Does that mean doing a head out roundhouse kick and falling flat on your backside is a good go-to move for self-defense? You know, obviously it isn't. You know, so uh, yeah, keep it basic for self-defense, and don't point to the exceptions or the exceptional people to, to justify what could be uh, very dangerous practices. So the next question we have is from Yori Kobayashi Dojo so a group page that one and he said training is all about learning and practicing principles of movement that can be applied when necessary in the real world so there are concessions to safety and practicality pads might be worn to protect shins and knuckles punches and kicks are pulled to avoid excessive contact uh, with a cooperating partner Dojo training should be interesting, fun and beneficial to health would you agree that one of the most dangerous things that can be learned in the Dojo is the mistaken belief that one's earnest training and physical capability will be enough to overcome very violent people who don't care about the consequences. And, and I totally get where that question's coming from, but I would say it's all about how you train. So there are some people who, you know, they go to the dojo three or four times a week, and they do some kata and they do some kion and some pair work and, and you know, have fun with the friends and, and then believe that that gives them the skills to deal with violent criminals, and of course it doesn't. But you can train uh, effectively, you can address uh, physical and and non-physical self-protection in a way where you're still making concessions, but it's done so in a more holistic way. So we've talked about this idea before of the training matrix, that only real is real, that every form of training has flaws, inherent flaws, flaws we deliberately put in there in order to ensure uh, safety and efficiency of training. It's no good if students are getting injured all the time because that takes time for them to recover, and, and, and therefore that means the training is inefficient. You know, it's damaging rather than uh, uh, building them, building them skill, building them physically. Uh, so what we do is we, we uh, mix the training types together to make sure that the flaws on one drill are corrected by the strengths of another. So an obvious example is if we spar light with control, we are therefore not hitting our partners hard. So, and, and that's a good thing because it allows lots of practice. We can develop skill. We can train for longer periods. We can train, you know on and on and on, you can't spar, even if you do full contact, you can't do it every session, because people get badly injured, you know, it's not that, Productive a way to train. So you're better off going light for skill development and consistency of training, but then you've got to say, well, yeah, but every blow I throw, I'm not driving in full power. There's a fault I've put in there, a beneficial fault, but it's double edged, obviously. It helps with the sparring, it doesn't help with the realism because we're lacking the power. Well, then what you do is, well, you go up the pads and you develop the power from there. Now, the problem, of course, with the pads is you can hit a pad, that's not the same as hitting a living, breathing, moving target that doesn't want to get hit. But you put the sparring and the pad work together and you've ticked both the boxes. You can hit a moving target that doesn't want to be hit and you know you can hit with force. So so, so that's the kind of essential idea. So I think if you're uh, pragmatically focused and your training matrix is correct, you will be making these concessions, but you're making them knowingly and you're identifying other drills that will correct those faults. If you're just going along and training mindlessly and you're not aware of these faults, I agree with the point completely that it can develop a sense of false confidence because people go, well, I've done my line work, I've done my cutter, I've done my three-step and five-step sparring, I've done some WKF-style uh, kumite and I now believe I'm ready to deal with violent criminals. And of course, you're not. But if you train for that, you know, to deal with that, 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 that explosive uh, last resort physical self defense skills, I think it can be done effectively in a way that's both safe and productive. And you will be making these concessions, uh, but you're doing so knowingly. And, and, and that's a key difference, I think. Next question we have is from Mark Bain, and he's asking about uh, protecting yourself when you're out with friends, having a few beers, and you get idiots trying to uh, cause fights. He goes, what's the best advice to protect yourself when drinking alcohol and uh, to make sure you don't put yourself into situations you can't escape from? So, statistics on this are quite clear in the UK. So, um, men under the age of 24 uh, are the most likely victims and perpetrators of violent crime, and often as not, it's around places that serve alcohol. Alcohol. So young men get drunk and kick off and hit other young men. Uh, so th- there's no doubt, you know, violent crime and alcohol are, are strongly, uh, strongly linked. Now, the 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 facts are: as soon as you consume alcohol, your physical skills will deteriorate and your ability to make sound judgments will deteriorate. So there's no good way to, you know, go out and get a skin full and then be able to protect yourself because you'll make bad decisions because that's what alcohol does to you, and you will be clumsy and uncoordinated because that's what alcohol does to you. Uh, The other thing, in terms of the UK at least, um, you're judged on your actions uh, under the law as you honestly believe them to be, whether that belief is uh, an unreasonable one or whether the belief is mistaken, it doesn't matter. You just have to honestly believe it. Now, the exception to that um, is, which is in. Criminal Justice and Immigration Act 2008. The exception to it is what it calls voluntary intoxication. So if you're sober and you make a bad decision, you can uh, rely on what you honestly believed in court and will be judged against it. You know, you just say, well, this is what I believed. Uh, it was honest to hell belief, you know, with 2020 hindsight and all the facts at my disposal, I may have done the wrong thing, but this is what I believed at the time. You know, and and that would be fine. You'll be judged upon that. But if you said, well, you know, I was down in my eighth pint, and I made this decision, they'll go, well, you can't rely on that decision, regardless of the fact that I honestly believed it, because it was a result of voluntary intoxication. So the, the, the key thing for me when it comes to... Um, alcohol and, and self-defence. First thing is, I, I am always of the view that the per- precautions taken should be commensurate with the threat, should be proportional to the threat. So if you're taking precautions that are in excess of the threat, you're paranoid. So if you won't leave the house without your stab vest on and all that kind of stuff, you're paranoid, right? Unless you live in an incredibly rough area. Uh, but And then you've got the other one is, well, that the, uh, the risks are greater than the precautions, in which case you're vulnerable. So we want to be neither. We don't want to be paranoid. We want to enjoy our lives, but we don't want to be vulnerable either, so I would suggest that you know, it's, it's, it can be nice to go out with friends, you know, to have a few beers, to share a few jokes, to get some nice food, get it, you know, it's a fun thing to do, but what you need to do is you need to be careful of the places where you drink, you need to be careful of the people that frequent those places, you even need to be careful of your friends too, because if you've got a friend who's a hothead when he's had a few beers, he can be an absolute liability as well, so be careful where you drink, be careful who you're drinking around with, and then measure... The, the amount that you drink as well it's totally possible to have a good night out without getting you know three sheets to uh, to the wind uh, but but uh, and that would be the good advice it's it's the soft skills don't drink too much be careful who you, who you drink with be careful where you drink but unfortunately you know there's no escape in the fact that as soon as you've consumed alcohol you are more likely to make bad decisions you are less physically capable of defending yourself and you're more likely to find yourself in legal trouble too Next question is from Chris Rose, and he says, Do you feel that there should be a governing organization or licensing system for anyone claiming to teach self-defense? Or do you have a different idea about how to stop the phonies from getting people hurt?" And there's a related question later on in this, uh, this podcast as well. I, I get why such a governing body or licensing system would be good. I am personally would be against it, because self-defense is generally so badly taught That uh, and and you see this all over the place. You know, you talk to police officers and they'll tell you what they're taught is bad. Uh, We've got people who work in like the National Health Service, school teachers, uh, airline um, stewardesses, people like that who who have to be taught basic self defence, basic control industry, prison service is the same, uh, and they'll tell you that what they're taught is often very bad. You know, it's it's not good quality material. And nevertheless, these are things uh, endorsed by you know government agencies and you know high level businesses. Uh, That's not to say all of it's bad and you know obviously there's a lot of good stuff out there in those fields as well but there's enough bad stuff that's that slipped through the net that makes me worries that that the scrutiny isn't what it should be and then as soon as you've got one overarching body in charge they can set what is what and then you could get them encapsulating and enforcing badly taught self defense you see and you know you get the money and the politics and everything else that always goes with organizations so um, i would be against that kind of thing personally uh, but I, I do believe that the it is important that self defence is taught properly. As I've said before, the worst people for teaching self defence are martial arts instructors because they teach martial arts, not self defence. They don't even fully understand what self defence is. If you're claiming to teach self defence, you need to go out there and educate yourself as to you know what that is and realise that only a very small proportion of martial arts crosses over. So we need to go out there and educate ourselves on it. And the way that we stop the phonies from hurting people is we educate uh, people on, on what self defence should be. Now, now, I, I see that we've had some measure of success in that. You know, I, I get, I, I see martial arts instructors, more of them saying, "You oh, no, I teach martial arts, not self-defense. Still got a long way to go with this though, you know, it, but the, the thing is, we just need to keep spreading the word. So when people start using phrases like street fight, you know, and making it synonymous with self-defense, as if self-defense is nothing but a fight in the street, uh, we need to challenge that. We need to put forward the, the alternative view. Uh, other information like that and then and, and then you 'll see people naturally eventually gravitate to what is the best solution, and this is why you know you see people like. You know, Peter Constein's, your Jeff Thompson's your Rory Miller's that they have a lot of success with what they do because open-minded uh, cr- people who think critically see that and realize it, it's good information. So, uh, so I think the, the way that we deal with this is making sure that there's good information out there and, and people are more educated and that way people will seek out good instruction and they'll avoid the uh, the phone. It's, I think trying to use an, uh, an organization to force that onto people uh, while that would be a good idea if it work wonderfully I think the way that people are the way that organisations tend to develop I, I'd, I'd be pretty much against it because I think it would bring more problems than it would probably solve so the next question is from Ali Wittick. he said with recent social media releases we've seen young adolescents attack other young adolescents with sickening and extreme violence For, so from those overseas who maybe haven't seen that I think what Ali's referring to there was a um, child a refugee uh, who was uh, bullied in quite an extreme way by a 16 year old adolescent uh, obviously hit social media and people were appalled by what they saw and I believe that police action was uh, following. Uh, And Ali says, to reflect this trend, should we lower the age at which we introduce our adolescent students to more realistic scenarios, i.e. making them louder, uh, coarser or more stressful. So I think one thing just on on the general point of social media is, uh, the way that the human brain works is that's one incident that was filmed, which most people in the uk have seen i've probably seen several times and our brains don't realize that was one event it seems to be everywhere and we see this all the time you'll get one example that happens and then you hear it on the midday news then you hear it at the four o'clock news then you hear it at the six o'clock news then you hear it at the ten o'clock news and think, man this is happening all the time so, so I, I, I don't know if things are getting more sickening or extreme violent i can think of lots of incidences from way back in the past that where things were pretty sickening and extreme but again i think the general trend although there's been an uptick recently the general trend for violence is is, is downwards i think in terms of pre- preparing uh, adolescent students for self-defense we need to be careful with what we, we do there um, because uh, and, and this also applies to adults to a degree as well but Uh, That realistic scenario-based stuff can be very useful and can be very appropriate, but it can also cause or trigger uh, trauma. So, for example, if one of your students has had difficult uh, events in their past and then you begin to recreate that, that can have a a problematic effect to their uh, mental health. Um, so I, it, it does need to be done uh, very carefully, I, I would think. My own view with, with uh, children is, is we teach them, you know, uh, effective avoidance skills, effective escape skills. Uh, we shouldn't be doing the screaming, shouting, and swearing with them because I just don't believe it would be appropriate and, and would probably cause more uh, um, problems than it would it would solve, really. So, yeah, I think it's just you know, let kids be kids. So, the final question in the self-defense section is from Ole Korov, and he said, How can we incorporate the soft skills of self-defense into more physical drills? How can the stuff that is only paid lip service to be made more graspable? So, it's a really good question, that, because most martial artists who claim to teach and practice self-defense. Uh, don't, that they're teaching martial arts and and they mistakenly believe them to be the same thing. And even those who get the physical part of it right, who understand, you know, the the, the violence, uh, the dynamics of violence, uh, criminal violence. Even those who get that right often ignore the wider skills that you also need for self-protection. So you need to know about things like home security, mobile security, uh, the nature of crime. Yeah, you need to know about uh, de-escalation, awareness skills. There's all kinds of stuff, you know, various communication models. Lots and lots of things that are a big, vital part of self-defense, often way more effective than the last resort physical skills, but they get completely ignored because martial artists don't know them so if you want to teach self-protection properly you need to educate yourself on that stuff too you need to know what the law is you need to understand how violent crime works uh you need to un- un- understand all these cu- communication models you need to understand uh, de-escalation Th- these things need to be part of your, your practice uh, and your teaching if you're teaching uh, self-defense now of course you know in the the martial arts dojo there's certain things uh, soft skills that you can't cover Um, but you can talk about how to make your home more secure and a less attractive uh, target for crime but you don't actually you know (laughs) let's have the karate club walk around everyone else's houses and and, and try and break into it you you don't do a physical drill for it these are things that get that get covered you know and how to drive your car safely and things like this and um, th- these are things that sh- that should be covered, but you don't practice them in the dojo. You know, we don't drive the car in the dojo and practice it there. Uh, but there are soft skills that can be practiced in the dojo, and it, it, the communication things would be a big part of it. So most martial artists, when they the, the spar or do live drills, bow or show some form of respect, and then have at it. Well, start it with someone. Role-playing, trying to use deception or charm or aggression, trying to kind of manipulate you in some way with their, their dialogue and then practice de-escalation. Uh, how, if you've got a person who can role-play well, sometimes they'll let that de-escalation work, sometimes they won't. They'll respond to what you do. I mean, we have this as a, a grading requirement from 8th uh, Q upwards, you know, they've got to do this this stuff. So students get good at it and we practice that communication stuff so yeah it does need to be included and you can the communication stuff the escape skills can definitely be practiced protecting others can be practiced anything where you've got people interacting can be practiced in the dojo the stuff where you haven't got people interacting so when you're talking about you know like home security mobile security that kind of stuff uh, then that needs to be part of the self defense education but naturally you can't practice it and, and martial arts who are serious about this need to educate themselves on that as well and there's loads of good resources out there so if I give one to Start with you know if if people were where do I start is uh, uh, one of my you know main influential uh, teachers Peter Considine, Nathan I uh, wrote a book on self defence called Streetwise. And these, I think if I remember rightly, there's like two chapters on the physical part of it, one on martial myths and one on the stuff that works. But there's loads of stuff on, you know, being awareness, you know, anti-surveillance stuff, you know, mobile security, home security, travel security, you know, because Peter has worked as a, an international bodyguard and security consultant, you know, for lots of high profile people and high profile firms. So he has that knowledge. And he does his, the Combat Coach Programme, which I'm, I'm part of delivering that, which is for those who want to go in real depth. But if you want to start somewhere, then get, get Peter's uh, Streetwise book. You know that'll, uh, That would be a good place to start. So, yeah, very important that we include this stuff. Obviously, the physical stuff, anything where there's an interaction between two people, you can include it in the dojo. The other stuff, you can't have it in a physical drill because, by nature, it's not physical, but it should still be part of your self-defense education. Mm. Now you can embark on the way of the dick for just $99.99 with our Dick Doe Starter Pack. Contents include business cards with Grandmaster printed before your name, our red and gold Grandmaster Street Belt designed to be worn with your everyday clothing. Let everyone know that your ego can't be contained by the four walls of the dojo, your how to guide to online martial arts discussions, an indispensable guide to self aggrandizement and the application of logical fallacy. Our DVD course on being culturally inappropriate at all times. How to live in the West while acting like you live in feudal Japan. We'll take you beyond simply adding sand to the end of people's names and asking for chopsticks when eating a McDonald's to the highest levels of geographical and cultural confusion. Leave people baffled with your unpredictable mix of Japanese, Chinese and Indian culture. Why say, Hi Bob, when you can bow and loudly exclaim, Namaste Bob-san. Order now to get your free samurai-style man bun and a car number plate with your style and downgrade on it. Martial arts are a way of life, and so is being a dick. So show the world you're awesome at both with our Dick Do Starter Pack. <laughs> I have to admit, I was particularly proud of that one. Um, so we now move on to discuss the training questions. So the next question is from Rhys Tabli. He says, do you do any Hoju If so, what equipment and exercises? Uh, what's your view on makiwara training? Do you do it and do you see any value in it? So uh, for the Hoju Wundo, I, I don't use the traditional kit. So I don't use the padlocks, the jars, you know, the, the weighted sticks, that kind of stuff. That That's not uh, for me. That's not to say it, it can't be useful, and I understand that people like doing it, but I just think they're are better physical training options for, for, for me. So like I'm a qualified weightlifting instructor, so I've always enjoyed uh, weightlifting. I uh, make use of the TRX. I, I use rowing machine regularly, cross trainer regularly. So that, that's the kind of stuff I use for my physical conditioning. Uh, don't really use the traditional kit it's, uh, simply because I prefer to use the modern kit. I, I just find that I've got good results from from that. And to be honest with you, when I see some of the hold you under stuff, I, I wonder if it's prone injury. You know, especially like the 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 cheesy, you know, the, the weighted sticks where people are throwing them around. or look at the stress that that's putting on the side of the elbow joint, and I, I, I it's not for me. I, again, that's not that I'm anti it. It's just that I personally wouldn't do it. I, I like using the modern modern kit, uh, weightlifting, TRX, row machine, cross trainer. These are things I use uh, most regularly. As regards a makiwara um, I do have one. I don't really use it uh, that often. I do see some value in it. I think it's good for developing uh, alignment and testing structure. Uh, I I do think one of its big problems are are that if it's the only impact training you do, your power generation becomes the type of power generation that suits hitting a makiwara and a makiwara is a bad analog for a person. So uh, people move when you hit them. They're soft and squishy and they're not bolted to the floor. Uh, So therefore you get People saying about oh, you know, you need to keep your heels down to deal with the back shock and all this kind of stuff, it's just not true. You can lift your heels and drive through, and you can hit like boxers do it all the time, and yet surprisingly, boxers don't fall over when they hit one another. Who'd have thought? So I think that can be a problem if the makiwara is your primary or only form of impact training, I think that's an issue. The other thing with the makiwara is it doesn't move, so you can't develop like hitting on the move with it. It, You can't change angle with it, you know, I mean, you can move around it, but you can't hit downwards, for example, and uh, you can't use combinations or any meaningful combinations on it. Again, I prefer modern kit, I prefer punch bags and focus mitts and and, and, and kick shields and stuff like that. I find that generates uh, 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 training opportunities where you can work for the generation of power in a realistic way, not standing in front of a piece of wood that's bolted to the floor. So, again, again, it does have value, but but to me it needs to be part of the mix. And if it's a primary thing, I think that becomes a little bit uh, problematic. You know, I mean, some people view the Makiwara as the ultimate you know, power generation device, but I don't believe that to be true. And I base that on the fact I've been hit by people who do use the Makiwara as their primary training device, and it's nothing compared to the people who uh, use the modern kit as their primary methods of impact training Uh, so yeah people move and a makiwara doesn't and the Makiwara is hard and people are soft, or, or largely soft. The People move when you hit them, the Makiwara doesn't. So uh, it has value, but I just think we have to say it's of limited value. So uh, apologies to all the traditionalists who will get offended by me turning heretic on that one, but there's an honest answer. Uh, so the next one is uh, of Darren Cunliffe. He said, uh, I started my karate journey later in life, he said at 38, and I struggled to kick uh, Yokogeri or Mawashigeri above waist height. What stretches, uh, training techniques do you uh, recommend for improving kicking flexibility for us inflexible late starters? So, and this, For me, this is an advantage I had, because I started when I was young, when I was a kid. So uh, up until probably about the same kind of age, really, you know, mid to late 30s, flexibility was a given. Now, 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 As I'm like, you know, approaching fifty, you know, I'm forty-seven now. Uh, flexibility is something I need to work on now. It never used to be like that. It's something I need to work on to uh, to maintain and and, um, and to develop. So. The best guy for this that I know is, is Donny Abel. Uh, so Do, Donny of Martial Arts Intelligence. Again, I have an interview with him recorded, which I want to share with you. Uh, what Donny doesn't know about the human body and how it works, you know, just isn't worth knowing. And there's a few other people I know that are really good too. That on on, on the kind of stretching stuff, some some great stuff recently. So they're probably the best people to answer for, for me. Uh, answer this question. For for me, I, I would think that the the key thing is. For a couple of things. One is, you can be a great martial artist and never kick above knee height. I, I've got black belts who train with me who have never been able to kick higher than mid-thigh, right? Because it doesn't matter. They can hit like mules, they're fast, they're explosive, they can throw, they can choke, they can strangle. So the fact that they can't do something athletic and flash, and that's not that practical anyway, has never been a concern of mine, you know, so... Um, so that, that, that's a f- the first thing is, you know, just because you can't kick high shouldn't be uh, something that excludes you from karate or enjoyment of karate because it's, it's not really that relevant a skill. In terms of uh, the stretching and training techniques, uh, my advice would be to stretch little and often. Yeah, to try and make it a habit because... Some people do, is they they sit themselves down for a big stretch, uh, and and I don't think that works very well. I think if you start your day with a little bit of mobility exercises, a little bit of stretching, uh, do a little bit in the middle of the day, just five minutes here and there, it's amazing how over time that keeps building up. So I I would stick to uh, simple, basic stretches. Uh, Don't push it to the point of discomfort or pain. Uh, Do it little often, and try and work it into your routine. So you know it's you know after you've got showered in the morning, then you have a little stretch, or after you know before lunch or whatever, you know, or after a coffee break, you have a little stretch. Uh, These kind of things, you know, can can help. So one of the things that I I do, for example, is uh, the office uh, that I'm recording this in now is in the upstairs of my house. So if I'm popping downstairs for a a cup of coffee or something, uh, what I'll do is I'll say, okay, at the top of the stairs I'll do a stretch, I'll go downstairs, make the coffee, come back up, when I hit the top of the stairs I'll do another little stretch. You know, just one leg each, you know, 15 seconds each side, takes no time at all, but up and down during the day you've done a lot of stretching and that has a kind of cumulative effect, you know, so... Yeah, that would be my advice. You know, stretch a little and often, and and listen to the podcasts I've got lined up, where people more knowledgeable on these things than me uh, will be able to give you some uh, some better advice. But uh, the key thing is, you don't let it bother you. you know, your, your martial arts can still be great without ever being able to kick up a waist height. It's you know, it can be fun. Not that important. Next question is from uh, Daniel Marino. He said, uh, "What would you say is the best martial art for a practically minded karateka to cross training training?" So. I'm going to cheat a little bit with this question. So I think the best thing for practically-minded karateka to cross-training is self-defense, proper self-defense, learning about crime, law, de-escalation, criminal behavior, all that kind of stuff. Go learn those skills. And then the physical skills that you've got from the traditional karate that sit nicely with that, that, that cross into that, then you've got that complete self-defense package. I know that's what Daniel's asking, but I just thought I'd throw that in there. If you're talking about what formal martial art people should cross-train in, my, my own answer would be judo. Uh, and the, and the reason I say that is is because that's one I've got personal uh, experience of, and quite a few of the guys I have trained with do. So there's two of my dan grades are both highly ranked in in, in judo. A lot of my dan grades have cross trained in judo. A lot of my q grades even have cross trained in judo. Uh, and I, I think it does it does help coming from that traditional Japanese karate perspective. It helps because it has a similar ethos. It has a similar terminology, so they fit together quite nicely that way. Uh, the emphasis is is on throwing, you know, and and, and the grappling side of things. So it does. Interfere with the striking side of things uh, from the the, the karate. Uh, it can help improve the basic uh, core fundamental throwing and locking skills that you'll get from the karate. You can take that to a higher level, uh, particularly when it comes to the, the, the groundwork side of things. Uh, one thing to be mindful of, of course, is you know most modern judo practitioners do practice it as a sport, so therefore they don't really think of it in terms of its application uh, in self defence. Give an example of that. I have a friend of mine who's a police trainer, and they have a budget to invite in. Uh, outside trainers, so he thought, well, we'll get a judo guy in to help the police officers with their groundwork. Uh, the first thing the judo instructor started to show them was, uh, how to turn a guy over that's face down onto his back. Which, of course, is what you need to win in judo. You've got to pin him from his, his back. And a d- defensive strategy in judo is to lie flat on your belly with your arms tucked in. Now, now, of course, for the police officers, they want you flat on your belly because that's where they handcuff you from. They don't want you on your back. So very quickly, they have to say, you are teaching us the exact opposite of what we need. Now, to the judo guy's credit, he went, uh, okay. And then it was instantly able to flip it over. It just had to be, clear on the objective and he he could do that with the skills so i would go to judo to learn judo you, you don't want to be that guy who's sitting in the class going oh, i wouldn't do this in self defense nobody wants to be that guy learn judo enjoy judo and then decide which parts of it are most relevant to the uh, the, the karate you know that, that's certainly what what, what i did uh, during my, my, my time with the judo i enjoyed judo i enjoyed practicing it uh, and and there was a relatively small amount of, that I learned in judo that made its way back into the karate but that small amount was very valuable uh, methods of training little nuances on throwing which really really did, uh, did, did, did help so for me personally I'm sure other people have other answers but I would say judo So the next question is from Gary Hood. He says, do you think that cross-training can have a negative effect on your core art? Uh, basically, no. I think cross-training is always a good thing, uh, providing you keep the eye on what your objective is. So when you're cross-training, what r- elements from this system that you're training in are relevant to your core objective and will sit nicely with your core art because uh, not everything moves across nicely. So, for example, if you've got a strong self-defense focus, and you're looking at you know, ways to take a guy down and submit him in submission wrestling, uh, some of that will be relevant, uh, some of it won't be. Like the takedown defense will be relevant. Uh, learning how to take a guy down and put a kneebar on is irrelevant when it comes to self-defense. Um, so you've got to watch that you don't get mixed up in terms of objective. That can be one thing. Uh, the other thing could be is that if your cross-training becomes your co- your main training, So you you switch art without really realizing you've done it. So, for example, you may decide that you want to do a little bit of Tai Chi for your health, you know. Uh, and relaxation you find that you enjoy the tai chi next thing you know you're neglecting the karate to do tai chi now if you decide that tai chi is the right art for you then well, hey have at it but if you still have the view that uh, i'm a karate first and foremost if you're spending less time practicing karate than you are other things and that all those other things are taking away from your karate practice that can have a a negative effect but th- these are you know Few and far between, I would say. Generally speaking, cross-training when it's done uh, intelligently and in a goal-focused way, it's, it's always beneficial, really. It's always beneficial. So the next question is from Xanthi Zane Gerissimo. Hope I'm pronouncing that one correctly. He said, in light of all the recent findings on the long-term damage to, uh, that head contact has on people, especially young people, how do you balance a desire to stay safe with the desire to pressure test techniques and to keep things grounded in reality? Could, can you give some examples of how you found that balance in your own live drills? Uh, so in the self-defense section, obviously, we, you know, we talk about the fact that uh, you've always got compromises to be made in the name of safety. So in this one, I like to focus in on uh, the head contact part of things. So th- there was a time where me and a number of my trainer partners, it was a Wednesday night. So on a Wednesday night, we'd gather together, and Wednesday night was full contact night. So we'd put the boxing gloves on, and, and, and we'd do uh, live realistic drills with the boxing dr- uh, guards on. Sometimes we'd put head guards on, sometimes not. And, you know, we'd have at it. And, and, you know, you do learn things from that. It, it learns, you learn about the chaos and dealing with it. You also learn that it gives you a bad head, that the next day you always feel worse for wear. And eventually you learn that this is taking a strong toll on the body and it's probably not something wise to do. It's not something I've done in a long time. Uh, uh, well, a, a, a thoughtful contact sometimes people argue well you need to learn to take a punch well there's two things with that. Is no you don't you need to learn how to not get punched the second thing is getting hit with a gloved fist is just totally different from getting hit with a bare fist you know, as, as anyone who's experienced both will tell you they're not the same thing what you need to develop to deal with uh, getting hit is just that, that raw aggression and determination and there's other ways to develop that intense training can develop that Uh, you you don't need to kind of, okay, stay still while I punch you in the head a few times so you get used to it. You know, It's not intelligent. I always uh, remember there was in Boxing Magazine a few years ago, uh, Bertrand Ingle, who's a top British boxing coach, trained a number of world champions. Um, He was saying that in in training for his pro fighters he doesn't have them fight full contact because he doesn't want them getting the careers shortened or or risking them getting injured in training And, and he's he ends his article with the line that uh, the only time anyone should get punched in the head is when they're getting paid millions of dollars for it to happen. So you know, and, and of course he's producing world champion fighters. So so the, the fact that they're sparring light is has little or no uh, detriment to their actual ability to fight hard when it's required. So so in terms of you know balancing my own live drills, we we, we don't uh, spar uh, heavy contact at all. You know, we we, we hit hard on the pads. Uh, when we spar, it's always done with control. We want people to be uh, safe while, while we do it. We still have the chaos. We, we still have the, the aliveness to it. We still have the unpredictability to it. Uh, but we keep the blows controlled because I want to look after my students. Uh, I don't want them getting injured. And, and as you say, recent findings are that you know, head contact is, is, is a bad thing. Uh, and I don't want my, my students uh, suffering long-term health consequences uh, because I wasn't able to structure a drill properly. So, yeah, so I yeah, hope that answers the question. So the next question is from Matt, Uh, again no surname He said, uh, do you think we've reached a point where there isn't that much to see and learn in Okinawa, Japan that can't be found elsewhere, uh, karate wise? Yes, you know, and and we've been that way for a very long time I think I think think karate has spread across the globe, it's adapted itself to different cultures I think every culture that's found karate has had a positive input to it globally You know, um, it's no longer a, a, a strictly Japanese or Okinawan thing, a lot of that's where it originated, it's a worldwide thing you know, there's good karate in America and Canada and Australia and in Europe. You know, all over the world, there's 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 good karate. There's good teachers and bad, but there's there are lots of good teachers. You know, there's uh, innovators in, in in every you know corner of the globe. So, my own view is going to Okinawa and Japan. You know, there's some great teachers there, but there's some great teachers everywhere else too. I think it would be nice to immerse yourself in the culture. Uh, I think it would be nice to see the sights. Uh, you know, th- that's what I enjoyed, you know, on my visit to Japan, but I don't think you, 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 you're missing out martially um, if, if you choose not to go there or, or, or can't go there, because, you know, that was my experience, some great martial artists in Japan, but there's some great martial artists in the UK too. And I've not seen anything in Japan that makes me think I need to travel there, you know, to get things I can't get from from, from anywhere else, you know. Yeah, you know what I mean? And again, I think that's a testament, you know, uh, to the, the the Japanese instructors who first started spreading karate. You know, they, they, I think they've, they've, they've done a good job. You know, they've, they've enabled, you know, other nations to pick it up and, and, and to run with it and, and to make it our own to the point where I think, you know, there's good karate game, wherever you look for it now. You know, it's, um, yeah, that must be a positive thing, I think. What good is a man's karate if it smells impractical? Dojo. Why should he train if he does not sweat? Dojo Introducing the newest cologne from the Abernathy Collection Eau de Dojo Dojo Ensure you do not smell like Chita with Eau de Dojo So in this section, we're going to look at general karate questions. The first one is from Liam Healy he said you recently published an article on karate's forgotten kicks arguing a sound case for their reintroduction to the syllabus which currently taught strikes blocks kicks throws etc do you think should be dropped from the karate syllabus if any and why so the first thing is of course is there's not one karate syllabus there's loads so things that are on my syllabus will not be on other ones and vice versa it depends on what style it is what the objective is are they training for sport for fitness for cultural reasons for self-defense you know what mix of all of those? You know, so different schools, different groups will have different objectives. And the key thing is you should drop anything which isn't congruent with your stated objectives. So, to give an example of that for me, um, uh, hook kick was one that uh, I practiced for years it was part of uh, the grading syllabus for groups that I previously belonged to uh, when my dojo became independent we dropped it overnight uh, the, the, the groups we'd belonged to previously had a competition element to what they did in addition to the self defense and the uh, the traditional stuff uh, for for me because we weren't going to do wkf style tournaments that kick is gone. It's an irrelevance to self-defence. Far too risky, doesn't really work, no real power in it. Um, for most people, you know, some incredibly gifted individuals can, but, you know, for most people, just, you know, punch him in the head, don't even think about hook kicking him in a real situation. And for even for the fighting side of what we did, we wanted to focus more on a, you know, anything goes all in way of fighting, uh, as opposed to, you know, WKF style points fighting. So we just dropped hook kick because it no longer had any relevance to anything we did. You know, we haven't taught it or practiced it for a very very long time now but 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 that doesn't mean that hook kick should be dropped from every syllabus so if you are competing or students are competing then they're going to need hook kick if they enter wkf style tournaments or similar so so my my key thing would be is to look at what your objective is for you and the group and anything that's not congruent with that objective should be dropped you'd be far better spending your training time on the things that you will use than, than wasting it on the things that are irrelevant and that don't really fit with what you do just because other people do them so um yeah i hope that's of of, of some interest So the next question is from Gareth Piper. He says, how important do you think the role of critical thinking is for martial artists and self-protection? What methods would you recommend to students or training partners to develop their own critical thinking skills? Furthermore, how do you think you could go about building this kind of thinking into your own syllabus? Uh, That's really good questions. Uh, Critical thinking is vital. uh, And we see far too little of it in in the modern martial arts. And, And you know what? Even those who think that they don't think you know oh, that, that's someone else's problem we're open minded and and logical it, it, it's somewhere else what they're often doing is they're just blind to their own dogma you, you see this an awful lot so you'll get like modern martial artists who look at uh, traditional martial arts and say oh you know for God's sake look at them punching the air and marching up and down rooms so they're not realize that's got no relevant to self defense anyway let's get on with our like super elaborate like ankle lock drills you know i mean it's you, 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 just, you see it all the time you know people I, uh, the, the style remains sacrosanct no matter what it is. The style cannot be questioned. And, and when that happens, it's a death of the style. You know, that, that's it. With It's going to die off. It, it, it's not criticizing itself. It's not looking at itself. And, and as, as soon as that happens, you get problems. So traditional martial arts have that, modern martial arts have that, all martial arts have it, because it's just something that, people inherently do we all do it everybody does it I know, I know i do it you know and and what we've got to do is we've got to be mindful of our own thinking to make sure that we discipline ourselves to be critical with our thinking because if we don't do that in, in invariably we, we, we do lean towards our own dogma everybody does you know it's just whether you know you do it or not you see so the, the key thing is is always to question so it's one of the things is i i love talking um to other martial artists who I, I know are critical thinkers, you know Jamie Club's a great example. You know Jamie to me is, as I've said before, a true martial philosopher. Anyone who's not listening to Jamie's podcast needs to be. Uh, Frontline podcast Club Chimera podcast Brilliant Because cause he's a critical thinker So I always really enjoy Talking with Jamie Because he causes me To reflect on things And he's a good check To make sure I'm not Missing anything In, in, in my own thinking And, and I kind of Try and do that myself It's almost like That scientific model You know scientists As soon as they think Okay I've got something here The very next question They ask is How do I prove this wrong but, but, because in, in trying to prove it wrong, they strengthen its position, or they know that what they've got is no longer truthful and therefore should be rejected. To give an example of this, I, I watched a documentary on the, the Hydron Collider, uh, and uh, on the day they finally got that thing up and running, it looks at one of the scientists and is he's, he's reflecting on the, the initial sets of information they've got. And he said, uh, said the camera. He goes, well, what we've learnt so far is that my entire life's work is incorrect. <laughs> and then he goes, which is interesting, you know. So it's not devastated that he's wrong. He's gone, great, you know. That that was that was a, a a wrong route for me to be taking. I'm glad that that has now been corrected. So so we 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 all need to do it, and we we and, and be mindful that we do. So how about building it into the syllabus? Is it's, it's a requirement? So for example, like I, uh, some of you'll know, on my grading syllabus, once the students hit. Uh, Brown Belt, they, they're, they're encouraged to now, now design drills, re examine this cat there, uh, come up with your own thoughts for it. You know, they're, they're encouraged to second guess what I have put forth to them. Because in, in doing that, you know, if they find something better, then wonderful. It's good for them and it's good for me. If they don't, then it strengthens where we already are. So uh, I, I think there's too much. Copy, copy, copy. You know, there's this Shuhari model we're supposed to be working to. So, the traditional concept, Shuhari, which means uh, copy, d- diverge, transcend. Um, so, we, we, we initially we copy because we have no knowledge and experience so we copy those around us who are more knowledgeable and more experienced at a certain point we, we we analyze what we know we start to diverge from what was taught based on our own experiences our own likes and dislikes we make it our own and then finally it's transcended to be something totally new unfortunately in, in martial arts we have this copy 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 you know it's you know, shoe, shoe, and more shoe. You know, and and nothing ever gets questioned or second-guessed. Yeah, no. So it's it, it's it's absolutely vital. Another thing I'll just add is as well is that uh, sometimes uh, people mistake critical thinking for just being arsy. You know, for just disagreeing with everything for the sake of it, and, and and that that's as dogmatic and dumb as agreeing with everything, you know, you know better a martial artist because you believe everything's rubbish than you are if you believe everything's fantastic, you need to look at each thing objectively and critically and, and devoid of emotion and, and decide, is this working, does this fit, uh, does this work, what's the best argument against it, you know, if you get into the habit of doing these things then you end up in a fairly uh, a fairly strong position, so critical thinking is vital, but it's got to be true critical thinking because we all can fall Pray to dogma. So we need to make sure that we check it. And, and again, it's not just a matter of critical thinking is not just disagreeing with everything or calling everything rubbish. It, it, it's genuinely and objectively looking at things with the aim to say, is this fulfilling the criteria? And if, if you do that, you know, we can all learn a lot and we can all make positive contributions. So the next question is a belt. So John Capra says, with karate now in the Olympics, could you please enter and show the world what karate really is? Thoughts, please. (laughs) So tongue-in-cheek question from John, I think. Uh, Obviously, you know... I enter a karate competition, I'm going to lose, right, you know, I'm a short, dumpy 47-year-old guy who hasn't trained that way in decades, right, you know, join me close range and I can do stuff, you know, I can't jump 20 feet across the mat to jump 20 feet back again, you know, that ain't me, you know, and of course, you know, the way you win karate competitions is doing the things that karate competitions need you to do to win, I haven't trained that stuff for a very long time, so, um... You, know, you try and use self-defense stuff in, in karate competitions, you, you lose. You either get scored upon radically or you get disqualified. So, you know, um, but, <laughs> so yeah, but, but I get that. I mean, people do seem to have this legitimate worry that Olympic karate is somehow going to obscure real karate. And I think we just need to get a, a sense of perspective with that, really, because at, at best, you know, so it's not a permanent part of the Olympics yet, you know, karate, it's going to be in the coming Tokyo ones, but it's not a permanent part, but let's say it is, Let, let's say karate becomes officially an Olympic sport, right, so first thing is, I'm really pleased for the karate athletes, the referees, the politicians who've made that happen, you know, that's the the ultimate for um, karate competition is, you know, Olympic gold, so it's a well done, all those people who've worked hard to achieve that, I'm pleased for them, it has no relevance at all to me though, and I don't think it'll have much relevance to the public either, and the reason for that is, at best, it's just another karate competition that happens once every four years. No one's going to stay up into the middle of the night. No one's going to, you know, oh, wait, I can't wait to see the karate. The only people who are going to do that are existing martial artists, and they'll already have a view on what karate is. Um, the, Joe Blogs general member of the public, isn't going to see it. He's not going to go out of his way to watch it. He may see a few moments on a highlight reel if one of his, his nation's uh, athletes wins a, you know, wins a medal with it. He may see a little bit of that. Uh, and so he's going to get 30 minutes on a highlight reel once every four years. That's not going to have a massive impact. On the way that people think about karate on a, a, a day-to-day basis, it may have a positive effect. Uh, what karate, as I see it at the moment, we have a lot of kids doing karate, and we have a lot of like 30-year-olds plus. Where most clubs tend to be missing is that middle age bracket. Uh, and I get this for the so for the youngsters, karate is a form of exercise; it's fun that you know they like it, and the parents want them to do it. For the 30-somethings, it's a form of exercise; it's you know it's self-defense. That's what you know 30s and olders want. Those teens and 20-somethings who want to prove themselves to themselves and to the world, you know, traditional karate doesn't really give them that. They're off doing, you know, other sports and, MMA and things like that. So it may be that, it you know, some 20-somethings teenagers see karate in the Olympics and go, yeah, that looks cool, I want to do that. And then, of course, they'll have their time in that and they may stay on to practice the more traditional form. Uh, so that, that's a positive. And it may be that some people I'll, who were wanting to take up karate will see these, you know, young, fit athletes jumping across the room and throwing high kicks and think, oh, well, I can't do that. You know, there's, there's no point in me doing karate. That's a possibility. But it's way more likely they're going to touch... Uh, type karate into youtube and see all kinds of things so you know i mean which are there 24 hours a day you know for the entire year so i I don't think karate in the olympics is going to have the the impact on the public consciousness that people think it's going to um i really don't and one thing i can say with absolute certainty, it will make zero squat diddly difference to the way i practice in my dojo you know um i'll be practicing in the same way that, that 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 i am now it will make zero difference and i would say that'll be true for the majority of those listening to this uh, next question is from Philip Dern. He says, uh, was, is the master-sensei relationship important? And did those relationships have any bearing on what the student was taught and told regarding uh, cutter applications? So um, if we're talking, you know, historically, you know, it's, it's people were careful who they took on as students. Um, so therefore, you know, if, if they were untrusted, it may be that they wouldn't be taught CATER, and or they wouldn't be taught it properly at least, they wouldn't be taught applications. So that had a bearing. Today, of course, you know, human relationships have a bearing, but I don't think there's anything particularly special about the teacher-student relationship if my students like me and I like them, then that's going to be more effective for us both, you know, but, but I don't think we need to kind of impose any kind of, uh, hierarchical relationship other than that. So uh, for me, you know, when people talk about sensei student relationships, it just, it doesn't quite sit right with me. It's person to person relationships. And, you know, if I play my part to have a good relationship with the people I teach and they play their part to have a good relationship with me, uh, we'll all get on, you know, and, and, and we'll learn uh, more effectively. So historically, yes, he did, uh, Today, will it have an influence? Well, of course it will. If my students don't like me or I don't like them, that's going to affect the way that we teach. Uh, but but I, I don't think it needs to be isolated as a special relationship. You know, people just need to treat each other well and then everything falls into place after that. So the next question is from Ben Pethick, he says, what's your favorite Funakoshi Itosu precept and why? Uh, So my favorite one is the second line of the first precept which is, uh, karate is not intended to be used against a lone adversary. It is a method of avoiding injury by using the hands and feet should one, by chance, be confronted by a villain or ruffian. So that's the second line of Itosu's first precept, because it defines what karate is. So he's saying that the karate of his time is not for fighting another martial artist in a consensual exchange. It's not for a single adversary. But it's a method of avoiding injury, so not winning, just keeping yourself safe, if, by chance, one should be confronted by a villain or ruffian. So it's also saying it's not for a consensual duel, it's for self-defense. And, you know, because there is a big difference between those two. And, you know, some people get it and some people don't, you know. Uh, but, uh, but that would be my my, my favourite one because it, it it defines what karate is and and uh, the karate of his time was the karate of the cutters was. So when we look at the karate of the cutter, we need to realise we're not seeing skills for out-dueling a fellow martial artist in an exchange that we've agreed to. We see skills for keeping ourselves safe if we're confronted by villains and ruffians, criminals, self self protection. So that would be my favourite one. But you know, there's loads of good ones. I quote them all the time. You know. I also like, you know, Itosu's, you must decide whether karate is for your health or for its practical application. You know, so again, you know, that's a good thing. Some people practice karate just for the health and enjoyment. Some people want practical functional skills, and they're not the same thing. And Itosu, in his day, was aware of the difference between the two. So there's loads, you know. Um, You know, quote Funakoshi's many times through this podcast, I'm sure. But yeah, that would be my favorite one. Okay, the second line of Itosu's first precept. So the next question is uh, Laurent uh, from Canada. He says, my question is the following. How would you set up a training syllabus and class uh, that is uh, to be more pragmatic than the standard 3K variation? And it then goes on to say that, you know, the organization that it currently works with has a very strong uh, 3K focus. And he's wondering whether it should completely break off or whether it can tweak the syllabus to include more bunkai and realism. You see, so... Uh, and this is quite common. I, I, I get like emails and questions about that at seminars a lot, you know. So people have that 3K, you know, kata on akumite and never the three shall meet. Uh, they have this, this, that way of practice and they want to move to a more, uh, practical way of, of, of practicing and, you know, how do they go about it? Uh, well, the first thing is, you know, if you belong to a group that you are getting value from, so, you know, you like the people there, you enjoy doing the kata with them, they, they help improve your key on, uh, you enjoy the forms of sparring that you do with them, then you don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, you can keep all that good stuff that you're getting there uh, and, and then add in, you know, the, the, the bunk eye, the pad work, the more realistic forms of sparring. You can, you can you can do that. You know, It doesn't need to be an either or. There's, there's a middle ground if that's what works for you. Uh, When it comes to changing the syllabus, uh, the, the people I know who have done that effectively are people who've done it slowly so uh, you get some people get really excited about you know the more pragmatic the more traditional approach uh, they walk into the dojo the next day and tell students okay completely changed uh, we're no longer doing this we are doing this I've restructured the syllabus and then what happens is people just get confused They're, they've been progressing along a certain path and that path changes radically from underneath them they get lost it never really works well what you're far better doing is making small changes over a longer period of time so if you have a syllabus that does no bunkai rather than jumping to one that's like you know, like you know, fifty percent bunkai, you say right for the next grading. In addition to doing all of this stuff we're going to drop out these three and five steps sparring and I want you to do a couple of these bits of bunkai instead. So that, that's a change that's not so radical it loses them and, it, and it's one they can, can stay with. And then once students have got used to that, you, know, you give it a few months and you say, okay, in addition to doing this kind of sparring, I want you to do this basic kind of sparring too. And you do it slowly over time. Now the groups that have done that, therefore you take all your students with you, there's not that massive culture shock of jumping from one to the other. As you make the change, most people tend to enjoy the more realistic approach more because it's it's logical and holistic and it hangs together and everything justifies itself, you know. So most people tend to enjoy it and they get more excited about it, you know. Uh, But to win over those hearts and minds as you're making that transition, uh, I would do it slowly, you know what I mean. So in terms of your question, I I would tweak it and then I would tweak it again, I would tweak it again so you slowly guide the syllabus to uh, to where you want it. Next question is from Ali Whitak. He said, uh, "Many sensei sell the idea that karate by default will ensure a positive character trait, uh, e. g we see crass adverts alleging that wives and mothers who are karate care have a more functional families. Uh, is this being irresponsible? Shouldn't karate be more of a catalyst to help people discover their own strengths and weaknesses, uh, in which it is through their own efforts or lack thereof that they either realize or never realize these traits So yeah, and see that's a thing you know I, I can't remember which master said it, but there's the a great quote where he said uh, uh, karate Aims to improve character, however, it can't guarantee it. And I'm sure, you know, just like me, many of those listening to this will know of high ranking Karateka who are horrible human beings. You know, in some places, you know, the arrogant, um, deceitful, greedy. Uh, in other cases, we have people who, you know who are you know criminals. You know what I mean. I, I can point to a few that you know are, are, are in prison who were nevertheless at one point you know respected uh, uh, karateka. So the idea that you do karate and 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 by default you suddenly become a great human being is, is demonstrably false. So I, so I take Ali's point. I think anything that's challenging will reveal your own uh, strengths and weaknesses. And then from there, it's whether you decide to address them or not. Now, karate by definition, to make progress in it, you're gonna have to develop a degree of discipline and you're gonna have to develop a decent work ethic. You know what I mean? And you're gonna have to deal with failure. So there's things that are naturally part of the path, which have the potential to lead to personal growth. But but again, that's, that's not guaranteed. Um, one of my instructors used to describe it as he says, it's like uh, putting a, like a, an inner tube from a, a push bike. Then you, you, you uh, you put the inner tube underwater, pump air into it and you can see the bubbles. It says karate is like the air being pumped into the, uh, the inner tube, which is you. It reveals where your weaknesses are. And yeah, I, I don't think we can claim that it can help develop character. We can't say that it will develop character. Uh, and to so give, give an example of this as well, just back to the inner tube analogy, uh, I remember um, talking with a, a friend of mine about some issues he was he was facing, and uh, and I was pointing out to him that he he was blaming other people for his own failings and circumstances for his own failings, and when I'd explained why he went, yeah, no, I kind of get your point, you see, and I felt rather proud of myself for helping guide him to that little breakthrough. Anyway. A little while afterwards, I'm 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 training, you know, and I'm and at this point you know, here, the drills are getting harder and harder and harder, and I find myself getting frustrated with the instructor, you know what I mean? It, it's his fault for doing this drill. Does he not realise this is ridiculous? This is too hard. He's not giving us enough of a rest. And then I realise I'm doing exactly what I <laughs> try to guide my friend towards realising. So I go, ah, I'm doing it myself instead of saying I haven't got the skills to do this drill, or I'm not fit enough to see this drill through to the end. And not I need to progress. I was blaming the drill and the person asking me to do the drill. So in that moment, I have that realization of ah, there you go, Ian. That's something you need to work on. There you are doing it. So I think you know karate can help that way. But but if you, if if you acknowledge or see these things and then do nothing about them, and then of course there's going to be uh, no change. So yeah, it can help develop character. It's not guaranteed to do it at all. hope you enjoyed that first part of the Bumper End of Year QA Christmas podcast. Uh, you can now listen to part two. Well you can listen it whenever you want, really, that's a joy of podcast. Uh where we'll be looking at Catherine Bunkai questions, uh, stances and techniques, uh weapons and miscellaneous questions. So thanks for joining me for part one, and I look forward to you joining me on part two soon.